John read the parable from Matthew 18 for us. <clears throat> I don't know, you, you, some, t- some people call it the parable of the unforgiving servant. Um, I've, never, I've never found a title that I'm perfectly comfortable with when it comes to this parable. And I'll tell you, I, I, I struggle with this parable. I struggle with it because I don't know who I should relate to in this parable. Or maybe I don't want to admit who I should relate to in this parable. I certainly can't relate to the king. He's got too much power. He's got too much wealth. I don't understand any of that. Sometimes I feel like the guy who gets choked out and told to pay up a few dollars. Especially around April 15th and I have to you know, turn in taxes. But, but I don't want to feel like the guy who's been forgiven of much and then turns out to be an ungracious slob. I don't want to feel like him. And yet I know that the parable is leading me to look at things from that perspective. So what am I supposed to do with this parable since I don't relate to it at all? And you know, we could, go, we could just admit today that, hey, this is a parable from Jesus. This is good. We're all supposed to know this. Here's the moral of the story and let's move on. But as we said two weeks ago, these parables are drawing us into the reality of the kingdom of heaven. They are saying that the kingdom of heaven is like this. And this illustration of the way that the kingdom of heaven is is opening us up to a different kind of reality than the world we live in. The way to comprehend this parable is to understand first that there's this sharp difference between the two debts that were owned. Now, the the different Bible versions in English will translate that differently. Let me give you this possible uh, interpretation. Let's say that an ancient worker made a dollar a day. The first man, the man who's called the evil servant, owes a debt to the king of $100 million. The second man, who the evil servant goes to him and throttles him to pay up his debt, owes a debt of $100. That means that the debt of the first servant is a million times greater than the debt of the second servant. And however you want to translate the funds or convert the cash, the point is one of those is really big and one of those is really small. You want me to make the point if you haven't made it already? Which one of those numbers would you like to see on your tax bill? If you chose the bottom answer, then you're normal. If you chose the top answer, you're being a smart aleck, okay? And I know the difference. The point is that the two amounts are that great, and the first one is ridiculous. But the second one, although it's a debt, is somewhat understandable and reasonable. It's the attitude of the servant who is forgiven that gets us into the kingdom of heaven. Here's the other way we have to appropriate this parable. This is going to be the adapter that helps us understand it, especially if we're having a hard time figuring out which one of these characters we are. And by the way, let me say this. To try to figure out which character you are is not the point. It's the reality of that kingdom that we want to absorb. 
Matthew 18 is a sermon of Jesus. And Jesus has two teachings about kingdom life. And they have to do with a question that he's asked. Uh, There's a second question as well. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That prompts the first part of this sermon, verses verses 1 through 14, where Jesus teaches us that we must become like little children. The second teaching is how we respond and how we deal with sin, how we deal with um, people who treat us wrong in in the community of God. How do we deal with people who are doing wrong in the community of God? And then the last section is this parable that brings those two teachings together, combines them, but then brings, brings them into three dimensions so that we understand how it all fits together. Let's take a look at each one of these, and you'll see where the parable takes us. First of all, Jesus is teaching us we must humble ourselves like a little child. The question has been asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Imagine what they're asking. They've got this new kingdom, this new rule, this new order of the ages, a new government. How do you become great in that government, they want to know. You're going to be the Lord. You're going to be the Messiah, Jesus. How do we get up there in the cabinet? How do we get up there into the, uh, you know, into the upper echelon? What do we have to do? What do we have to do to earn your favor, great and mighty king? Jesus redefines greatness. He says you're to become like little children. And that means vulnerability. It means that we're dependent. We are dependent on the unlimited grace of the Lord. Now this is the reverse of what the world taught then and what the world teaches now about greatness. In our worldly definition, which could just be our default definition of greatness, it means being strong, it means being independent, it means that we are self-sufficient, it means that we are successful, During all this graduation season, there's going to be a lot of talk about being successful, being great, making a name for yourself. But Jesus says that greatness in the kingdom of heaven is understanding that you are dependent on God's grace for everything. That changes our perspective from what we're used to. The kingdom of the world measures relationships in terms of rank and authority. Who's in charge in the church? What are the different offices in the church? Who's in charge in the communities that you live in? Who's in charge in the family? We focus on all of those things. And and not to ask how we can be servants to one another, but in the world we focus on these things, either to know who to blame or to know who's in control. And the kingdom of heaven opens up a new perspective. What if you are in the position, everybody's in the position of the vulnerable ones? of the helpless ones, the little children. And in this teaching, Jesus goes so far as to say that that he, he respects his little ones, his vulnerable ones. He cares about them so much, and he warns us that if we cause any of them to stumble, then you're going to have him opposed to you. Now, right here, we got to say something about stumbling blocks, okay? Because I want you to hear what a stumbling block is in the context of this teaching. Because we need to learn the difference between a stumbling block and a chip on the shoulder, okay? Those are two very different kinds of wood. And we often get them confused. Causing someone to stumble 
involves intention on the part of the one causing stumbling. It means that the, that the one making, the, I, I, what do you call them, the stumbler and the stumbly? I don't know. But the one who is putting the stumbling block out there, the one who is giving offense, has the intent of causing others to sin. It might be through intimidation. It might be through abuse of power. It might be through the misappropriation of leadership. But there's an intentionality in that stumbling block that you are placing that there as an obstacle to this person's path of righteousness in their walk of faith. Now, that's serious business. You might think of peer pressure, what we often think of, where uh, people who are engaging in things that they know are wrong, but, you know, as they say, misery loves company and so does sin, that people want others to join them in that bad behavior. And they intimidate them, or they ridicule them, or they shame them. Now, that's a stumbling block. Let me give you a real example of a stumbling block, and maybe this illustrates it. I I knew a man who had overcome years of drug abuse and alcoholism. And his path of righteousness was very new. He was definitely one of Christ's little ones. He was just learning to walk all over again. He was really learning to walk for Christ for the first time ever in his life. And just like an infant learning to walk, he's he's getting it, but he's stumbling around and he's very shaky. And you know, you've seen the little guys. It's a good thing that God made them close to the ground because it doesn't take very much at all to knock them off their pins, right? I mean, they're walking along and there's a Lego under their foot. Boom, that's it. They fall over. Well, this guy that I knew was like that spiritually. Every day was a decision that he made to walk right. And he was, he was doing it with God's help, with God's grace. He was doing it, and he was aware of it. He was employed by a man who claimed to be a Christian brother. And I say claimed to be because this man's business ethics seemed to be very worldly. He intimidated and he cheated that younger brother who was trying to walk the path of righteousness. And that led the younger brother to anger He felt like he was being abused. He felt like he was being taken advantage of. And it tempted him to go back to using drugs. And it tempted him to go back to drinking. Just to cope with the stress. But he fought that off. And finally he approached the other man and and told him how wrong he thought this was. And sadly the man who was supposed to be his older brother ridiculed him and spoke hatefully to him and told him that he needed to grow up and realize that this was just business. Now, can you understand how that man's attitude would have been a stumbling block to this little one? That's a stumbling block. By contrast, when somebody does something you don't like or when you don't, things don't go your way, That's not necessarily a stumbling block that somebody's putting out there. If if it's a stumbling block every time somebody does something you don't like, then you might as well get a wheelchair, okay? Because you're going to be stumbling all over the place. That doesn't count as a stumbling block. Even if something makes you uncomfortable, that's not necessarily a stumbling block. And if you're mature enough to know the difference, it's definitely not a stumbling block. A very wise man put it to me like this one day. He said, there's a difference between making your brother stumble and making your brother grumble. 
And, and whether we're the one making people grumble or whether they're the one that is grumbling, we need to know the difference. It's one thing when somebody does something that truly offends us. But if we're getting upset for other reasons, then we need to work it out a different way. And by the way, none of this means we don't have to manage it or work on it. We certainly can do that. But let's be careful before we declare something a stumbling block and understand that this has to do with humility and vulnerability and dependence in the kingdom. A wise woman once told me that if you're mature enough that you claim to be the weaker member and you're using that to get your own way, then you're really the stronger member being manipulative. That was a very wise woman that pointed that out to me. Remember that the teaching of Jesus is for us to be like little children it's not for us to be childish, okay? There is quite a difference. So keep this first teaching of Jesus in mind, that we are to humble ourselves like children in the kingdom. And then he adds to it a second teaching. And in this second teaching, he tells us how we ought to work with one another. Because Jesus is not naive. He knows that even in the kingdom of heaven, there's going to be friction. We're not all going to get along. That people are going to do things that we don't like. And yes, some people are going to do things that are out of line. In the story that I told you, the man who was trying to walk the path of righteousness, he went to his Christian brother and told him that there was a problem with it. He was following the teaching of Jesus that you read in these five verses. And let me say something about these five verses. Church, do we understand how powerful and how important these five verses are? This is the clear, direct teaching of Jesus on how we deal with our differences in the kingdom way. That when we feel wronged or when we are at real disagreement with somebody, we are to do what Jesus said. Now, I've heard people say, well, that's a great idea. I've heard people say that works in theory, but it doesn't always work in the real world. No, it doesn't work in the real world. It works in the kingdom of heaven. And we've got to do this. Too often I hear people act like this is somehow not applicable in every situation. Or we practice it in such a way where we say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like what the preacher preached today and he wasn't wearing a tie. I think I'm going to go tell the elders about this. The thing I appreciate about our elders, and I want you to know this, is, and I know none of you are really going to do that, okay? Um, you know, just, you, you can send me a text later and put on a tie, joker. And so the, uh, but... What I appreciate about our elders is they operate by this teaching of Jesus. And the first thing they want to do is they want us to reconcile and have peace with one another. And if you go to them and you talk about how you're having problems with somebody else, the first thing they're going to ask you is, can you go to them and talk this out? And they're going to be willing to help you. If you come to me and you ask me that, the first thing I'm going to say is, well, what did your brother or sister say when you spoke to them about this? I'm going to assume that you spoke to them about it already. And then I'm going to offer to help you in any way. Because the goal of this teaching is for all of us to reach a place of peace and reconciliation where we sort these things out. When you look at what Jesus is saying at every level, even when other people are brought in, the goal and the objective is always to bring people together in the name of Christ. Now, take that teaching about humility that teaching about dependence. All of us are dependent upon the Lord for grace and mercy. And now all of us have to practice that grace and mercy as we're working for peace and reconciliation. 
And only rarely do we jump to that last stage where we shun someone and we treat them like an outsider. Some people want to just, you know, skip all the intermediate steps and go straight to that one. You know, let's, it's time to shut them. They're a tax collector, you know, and it's time to, let's, let's, just, let's just shut them out. But you've got to work through every single step that comes before that. And even then, you only do that because they have made themselves an outsider. It is a difficult process. But we show forgiveness without ignoring sins. And one of the things that's unique about this teaching is that we're not concerned to even up the scales. There's a worldly translation or a worldly interpretation of the Old Testament teaching of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We think that means if somebody hits you, you hit them back. If somebody hits you, you hit them harder. And we want to make that our policy in life. We want to make that our policy in business. We want to make that our policy in politics. And sadly, sometimes, sometimes you see people making that their policy in church. That it's us versus the world, and we're going to beat them until they follow Christ. That's not the way of Christ. And in fact, he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was fine if you understood that really what it was is it was a, limit, it was a limitation. That if somebody punches you in the jaw and knocks out a tooth, you do not have the right to go kill them. It was a limitation on restitution. And Jesus says, what if we didn't worry about restitution? What if we didn't worry about evening the scales all the time, but instead lived in a different way? How would that change, not just us, but how would that change the world? And he begins giving us this vision of the kingdom way. There's a greater goal than compensation or retaliation or restitution in the kingdom, and that's unity. Okay, that's all good and well, but you can understand then Peter's question when he says, yeah, but at what point have you done enough? And I'll tell you, I understand what Peter's saying. I've done ministry long enough now to know that some people, you forgive them, and you keep forgiving them, and they take, they take an inch, that, you, know, you, you give them an inch, they take a foot. You give them a foot, they take a mile. You know, what are we going to do about that? Do we just continue to be suckers? Well, honestly, there's a time when love looks like calling someone to accountability. But even when we call someone to accountability, we're not trying to get even. What we're trying to do is establish peace and reconciliation, and we're asking that the sin that causes such destruction is dealt with. Now, how do we know the balance between that? That's where the parable shows us what the kingdom of heaven is like. It shows us that God's mercy means something. You know, I I say it to myself, and you've probably said it, and you hear it all the time, that forgiving others, truly forgiving others, is difficult. That's right. It is difficult. And Jesus even teaches us that there's some effort that goes along with it. There are some things we must do. We have to go talk to people. We have to go work with people. But in doing that, we don't go and speak down to them or scold them. We have to go to them humbly as little children. Not as people who are going to set everybody straight. Watch out or you'll become the one who gives a stumbling block in that case. But if we all have the humility of little children, knowing that we're all dependent on God's grace, then we're not going to end up like the evil servant who, even though he's been, his debt of a hundred million has been canceled, goes out and throttles a man for a hundred dollars. 
You see, what that, when we understand all of this teaching, what the parable shows us is that to be that way is inappropriate. The parable shows us that it is inappropriate not to give forgiveness a chance. Now, the evil servant who had been forgiven of $100 million, he had a couple of options. He could have gone to the man that owed him 100 and simply given him more time to pay. The man asked for it. Could you just give me more time to pay? And it's reasonable that given time, the man could have paid off that debt. And you know what? Maybe it was the right thing for him to pay off that debt. But he doesn't even give that an, a chance to happen, does he? If he had, I think the other people who were watching this would have said, well, that's still appropriate. He's showing mercy, even if he's demanding payment. But it's his behavior choking the poor man, throwing him in jail. And how are you going to pay off debt if you're in jail? This makes about as much sense as the credit card companies who, when you're behind on your payment, they raise your interest rate. Hey, you're having trouble paying. I tell you what, we're going to make it a whole lot harder. Glad we could help. Uh, It's inappropriate to do that. Just as it's inappropriate for us to hold a grudge or to refuse to forgive when we've been forgiven of much especially if we haven't even given forgiveness a chance. This is the way in the kingdom that we deal with sin. By the way, forgiveness does not ignore the need for repentance. Forgiveness and repentance go hand in hand. They're like the, uh, the inhale and the exhale of breathing. Okay, they, they are part of a cycle. Forgiveness and repentance lead to the kind of change that results in peace and unity in the kingdom of heaven. Now understand this, this parable isn't about financial debts either. It's about grace. And grace is more than just the opposite of sin. Grace is the solution to the destruction of sin. Because sin at every level is an injury to ourselves and to others. Sometimes just as a philosophical exercise, I'll try to ask myself, you know, what really is a victimless crime? What is a victimless sin? And I can't think of it. Because every time each and every one of us sins, we diminish the whole of the body of Christ. We hurt ourselves and others. Think about it. The man who owed $100 million, he wasn't the only one that was going to get punished for that. His family was going to be sold into slavery because of what he had done. It affects us all. Just as the evil servant was going to um, demand that this man pay him back, it's a sin for us to demand that of others when we don't realize how much our sins have touched others. It goes to show us that we all need mercy. You might be saying to me, well, you know, I, I don't have that much mercy to give some people. And I'm going to tell you something. I know for a fact I don't have that much mercy for some people. It doesn't come to me very naturally. Thank God it's not up to how much mercy you and I have. The mercy comes from the king. The mercy comes from him. And there's more than enough mercy there to forgive hundreds of millions of quotients of debt and sin. So this morning, your call, your response to the Word of God may be that you need to work 
on the process of forgiveness. Follow the teachings of Jesus. Show grace and mercy to someone. Maybe someone who's needed you to show that grace and mercy for a long, long time. Don't tell me about it. Not unless you need my help. Don't tell others about it. You go to that person and you do that. You work on that. Knowing that you've got all the resources of heaven to show that mercy and grace. Some of you need to get with those people and and maybe it's somebody who's done you wrong that you need to go talk to. It could go either way. It might be somebody you've done wrong. It might be somebody who's done you wrong. But you need to get together with them and you need to have a summit meeting with Jesus. And he says that if you'll do that, he'll be right there with you. Now what could be better incentive than to know that when you come together with that person, you are fellowshipping with the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of you may just need to quit paying off Jesus. You're still acting as if you've got a balance on your debt with him. Oh, I've got to do more good things to pay him off. Hey, he's released you. He's released you so that you can live by his grace because it means something. He doesn't want you to live in the worldly way that keeps focusing on paying off debts. He wants you to live in the kingdom way that puts grace into action. So, Whichever response you need to make to God's word today, I pray that God gives you the courage to do that. Would you pray with me for just a second? Father, I ask that as we sing this song that we'll be convicted, that we'll be convicted of the response that we need to make so that we will humble ourselves like children, so that we will do the hard work of forgiveness, and so that we will strive for peace and unity, so that we can live in a kingdom where all of us know how merciful you've been And as much as we've been shown mercy, we can show mercy to one another. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing.